Well, once again, uh, we're back in Matthew. This is a sort of return to Matthew's sermon, and I would invite you to turn to Matthew 10 in your Bibles. And uh, this is a section of scripture that was stirring us before the Christmas holiday, and then I kind of took a hiatus into the holidays and did some work in Isaiah 53. But now we're back to Matthew 10, and if you'll sort of let me retread some ground to catch us up, because it's been some six weeks since we've been in this study, but it's, uh, it's an important one for us, because this is the study that is Jesus calling and commissioning of his 12 into battle, into precarious times, threatening times, times of persecution, Times where Christians are brought to the brink of their own confidence, whether they are going to proclaim Christ under duress or perhaps flee the opportunity to be a witness for him. We don't want to choke. We want in God's plan and providence to be faithful as witnesses. Uh, The Greek word uh, martyria, which means witness, which became synonymous with martyr and being killed for the faith is all intertwined because when the pressure comes on at this level, that is an appropriate word for witness. Witness means to stand for Christ no matter what. This is a section of scripture in Matthew 10 that has been called the cost of discipleship. What God will call you to give to be his own, to be a true follower of Christ is costly. This is not the church service that you come to to feel comfortable in or feel, you know, warmly disposed in the social club uh, out of the fray of what was hard in life. This is where you come to be inspired by a gospel that is worthy to be followed, a Lord that is worthy to be submitted to, and a mission that is worthy to be a part of and worthy to give your life for. That's this church service. That's this message. That's this section of scripture. Matthew 10 is what I call the uh, war room section. It's the war manual where Jesus has called his 12 by name. And then he has commissioned them into service, verses 5 through 15, to go out to his own and go into their homes and be Jesus' missionaries, Messiah's missionaries to the Jews first. And then after that commission, there is a great caution that begins at verse 16 and goes down through verse 23, the cautioning of his apostles. This is cautioning that is, as we'll read, raises the stakes of what will happen to them. And we know it also from the book of Acts happened to the early church. And then it's what will happen to us in this age and up until Christ returns. In principle, these things are for all of us in terms of the mission that is before us. Now, how is the cautioning of the 12 and a caution mission like this supposed to help us spiritually? How is it supposed to help me? That's what you're saying, right? Well, it helps us because a high bar caution can also quickly turn into real inspiration. It's being the soldiers at Dunkirk, being willing to go, willing to pay the ultimate price, 
worthy to die for a worthy cause. It's Hudson Taylor who inspired in the China and Inland Mission, he inspired Oxford graduates, athletes and scholars and theologians to join him in the mission in a place where they'd have to be in hostile territory and take on manners and customs that they weren't used to for a cause that was greater than themselves. It's where the line is drawn in the the sand where Ernest Shackleton said, hey, let's explore the southern pole of Antarctica and be the first to explore that land and cross Antarctica together. And people said, where can I sign up? I want to join a mission like that. Caution, high stakes, cost of discipleship can easily turn into the inspiration we need to endure a fight like this one. It was said... Um, that in a time of war, there was a sergeant who was calling for his private to come out of the foxhole. He was afraid of dying. The bullets are flying overhead, and the sergeant's screaming at him, come out into the fight. And the private was saying, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to come out. Well, the sergeant, in disgust, looked at him and said, listen, until you're dead already, you're of no use to me at all. Jesus calls us to follow him even if it means giving our life for him. You say, well, how can that be? How can things get really this bad? I mean, come on. We live in a day and age where we have the freedom of religion. We're fine. Where It's no problem here to be a Christian in our country. And that might be true today. But we know that even through the study of Matthew, because I take so long in a book of the Bible, we've been here probably a year and a half Things since I started where I was giving persecution sermons because I was paralleling Herod's persecution with the Messiah, trying to snuff him out at birth, right? You remember those sermons a long time ago. Things have heated up in our culture even since then. This is appropriate and applicable for us today. How bad will it get? Well, it'll get as bad as it was for the apostles, as bad as it was for the early church. It'll get This bad, even as verse 23 of chapter 10 says, as we are preaching the gospel from town to town, all the way up to the son of man and when he returns. This is a passage of what is called telescopic fulfillment. It's the apostles. It's Jesus talking to them, the 12, but it's also in principle, something that's translating for the future. For the church, we are living in unprecedented times in our culture. It was that way for the early church. And now we have new things that are happening. We have wars and rumors of wars. And we have pressures that are coming from without and pressures on our country. And pressures in terms of the liberal agendas that are, that are turning things on their head, which are making normal Christian family ethics What's weird and odd for people and even offensive to people for us to believe in biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, the fabric of the family, how children are born in our culture. All of that is being assaulted and the government bears the sword. It's established by God, but when it's corrupted and when Satan is involved in that, it can come after easily after the church. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to talk this morning about Three different kinds of persecution. This is the catch-up sermon. It's ground I've covered before. I'll bring in some more with point three. But point one is the the first layer of persecution comes within religion. 
within the church. You will see the church inviting and fighting itself, trying to snuff out the message of the gospel. And then second, the second point in an area that we'll cover is how persecution will come from the government. And then thirdly, and sadly, the, the most severe form of persecution to the church and to a Christian is the form of persecution that comes within the family. And so you have religion, you have government, and you have family persecution. Three layers, three levels, and that's what we will be looking through this morning, you say, well, how is this really real to us today? Because we're not a communist government. We're not in jeopardy. We're not in those kinds of threats. Well, I was uh, made aware on a Zoom call that I was a part of a couple weeks ago. It was a Zoom call with the Master's Fellowship, a lot of Master's graduates who are um, splayed across the country and around the world as Christians and missionary pastors. And we were all Zooming in to hear from John MacArthur on some of the latest issues and things that are on his heart He's 82 years old, and so it's interesting to Zoom call with him. And I kind of came in off of an earlier appointment, coming into my office quick and flipped up my Surface Pro and uh, went into the Zoom call and was, you know, seeing 40 or 50 boxes already up there. It was kind of that eerie pause silence of who's going to moderate moment, right? And is my microphone on or not, right, with Zooming? And as I come up and hit go, John MacArthur, suddenly my window went right up next to his, and he said, Oh, hi, Jeff. Uh, good to see you. Jeff from Alaska. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, do I, do I have like a decent shirt on? What's happening right now? And, uh, but really the point of that time was uh, he was raising the issue of what's happening in Alberta, Canada with uh, James Coates again. And you remember James and Aaron, and we prayed for him as he was gathering during the um, COVID shutdown regulations. He was taking the stand that it's important to gather and not forsake the assembling together. Some churches in Canada took a different position and went underground. He was standing, um, taking that stand for truth in that way, but it cost him imprisonment. He was separated from his family. I got to meet him at a conference uh, not too many months ago. He and Aaron, real sweet people, just normal people, just just a preacher and his wife, and that's what he was doing up there. And now he is uh, asking for prayer because new laws are being put in place that will cost pastors their freedom. They, they will be put in prison um, under this law of you cannot um, promote conversion therapy in uh, their country. And conversion therapy is a secular form of counseling that I don't promote or, or affirm. But uh, the idea of the word conversion in that has become a Trojan horse into the church. Because anytime you are trying to convert someone away from a sin such as homosexuality or someone saying they are transitioning from being male to female, if you inject the gospel in that and say, listen, homosexuality is a sin. We're standing for grace and we want you to be converted spiritually. Anytime you're doing that, that can put you in jail under this C4 law that is put in place now in Canada. So MacArthur was raising that issue and saying we need to stand in pulpits um, for the preaching of the word of God against any sin. And we need to stand for the theology of conversion, not for government reform, not for um, the sake of secular therapy or counseling, but to uh, preach the gospel to, guess what, keep people out of hell. We want to preach the truth in love and graciousness. But we want to preach the truth. We want to preach the truth publicly and in private ministry behind shut doors and in the counseling office. And it's going to be a scary thing when you as a parent have to make a decision what you tell your child. 
Because government will watch that and will monitor that. And we need to be able to win our children to Christ. You say, is it that potent and powerful? Well, I was watching online last night uh, a pastor from Lafayette, Indiana, Steve Viers, And he's at Faith, I believe it's Faith Church is what they call it. It might be Faith Bible Church in Lafayette. I've been to a counseling, biblical counseling conference there before. He's been there for decades um, a faithful biblical counselor. They have a strong counseling ministry on Mondays that um, is free of charge. These are unlicensed counselors who are now under duress in Lafayette, Indiana, under government um, duress, where city councils are passing laws that are saying, if you, that church, continue to do this, in particular, counseling children about the sin of homosexuality, you'll be fined $1,000 a day for that. Steve Byers is saying, I don't have $1,000 a day. We're not that kind of ministry and mission, so what's next? So this is real. This is what Jesus is preparing us for in the coming days as a church in a mission where caution should turn into inspiration. I kind of paralleled this uh, text that we looked at weeks ago as a, as a police ride-along where the policemen are the ones that go out there and, and then you have certain ones who are cadets who are learning the mission and ministry by sitting in the car. While the, while the policeman's out there in danger, we can watch on-the-job training style behind bulletproof glass maybe in the car in safety and learn for when we're supposed to go out and do that in like manner. So let's go on the ride along of the apostles, and I'm going to begin at verse 16. Follow as I read. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So for it, it, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father, the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's stop there. The first level of persecution is religious. That's what we find here in our text. Jesus is building the bridge between the commission of the apostles to a caution. To a caution. In an earlier verse, he, verse 6, he told the apostles, the 12, the ones whom he named, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to them. Go to your own. Go to your own ethnicity first. The ones who were the most likely candidates to believe. Witness to them. Minister to those sheep. And now in verse 16, he's calling these apostles sheep in the midst of wolves. We are the sheep. We are the sheep of God's pasture. We are the same. The Lord is our great shepherd. And he's saying, you are sheep. And both metaphors and analogies speak to vulnerability. 
The Israelites were vulnerable to false ideas that they were coming up with in their own law-keeping and legalism. And the grace of the gospel was to free them from that, for them to see the Messiah. And now Jesus is saying, look, you're actually the sheep because you are vulnerable and you're going under their attack. They're going to turn on you as ravenous wolves. In Matthew 7, beware of the false prophets. Why? Because they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They want to eat you up. This is where religion eats religion. It's cannibalization that happens even within the church. Acts 20, 29, fierce wolves will come in among you. That was the eldership, the leadership of the church at Ephesus where wolves are going to come in and rip people apart and they will do that at times for their own ends. You say, how could that even happen in the church? Are you kidding me? Well, let's draw the line in the sand and say, this is a sin and we need to stand for that as a church in a hostile country. And some churches will say, no way, I'm not... I'm not part of that. In fact, I'm not not only not part of that, I'm against you for doing that because that's making my life hard as a church or a pastor, right? That's how the church will begin to attack itself. And we have to be aware of that. This is exactly what happened to Jesus, right? It says, beware of who? Demons? It says, no, beware of men, men. Now, it's been said that men are the host or the agents of Satan. You'll see that. You'll see there are people who have, they're under their own um, sort of delusions and they, they become the enemy. And they're the ones who deliver you over. That's the same word that's used in that um, time period as prisoners delivering pr- prisoners over to um, worse persecution. It was Judas Iscariot delivering over Jesus to be crucified over to courts and flog you in synagogues. This is where before AD 70, Rome would allow the synagogues to persecute the church. Uh, the strange, awful irony is that to be Saul, who was Paul as a zealot for the synagogue, right? He was a zealot as a Pharisee, of, of, of the promoter of a God religion to snuff out the church. And so people puffed up in self-righteousness will attack the truth. They'll attack the church. We have to be aware of that. It was flogging that was taking place in that day and flogging was uh, what was done to Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That was prescribed in Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic law, Deuteronomy 25, verse 3, the 40 lashes. That was for people who were violating God's law in God's covenant community in the Old Testament. And then they, the religious leaders who became wolves became puffed up in pride to snuff out the church. They're using God's law to justify persecuting Christians. And doing it, mocking them, singing psalms and hymns while they're delivering beatings to Christians. This is the expectation that we should have to be being delivered over to men who are agents of demonic hosts. This is what's happening in the end times. You say, is that even possible? Well, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, it talks about verse 7, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street, the great city, symbolically of Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. Revelation 17, 
It talks about how on her forehead was a, was a name of mystery. It's Mystery Babylon who represents the devil. This is the great harlot. This is the great immorality that comes over the world that seduces people because they want their lust, they want their cravings, so they want to snuff out the church. And even the church will do this to itself in the name of religion. It's false religion. I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's coming, Revelation 17, 5 and 6. What's the second area of persecution? Government. So not only will it happen within the church, where the church turns on the church, but government. You say, we love our country, and I do. I love our country. I respect and want to honor those in the military. I love those who serve, um, serve God's institution, both Christians and non-Christians who serve. I want to dignify that. I take nothing away from that. I love living in a state that's a military state, a military town. I was just on the East Coast where sort of an area where I'm from. I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I grew up with a bunch of Navy brats. Um, Those were my people. And I, I love that. And I respect that. But it's just very important to understand that though God, he created and established the government, And he established the family. These are God's institutions. And he established the church. The church is the only institution that is of Christ and is under um, the Lord's headship. The governing authority wields the sword. And the testimony of the governing authority in Scripture is one of persecution. Whether you have Nebuchadnezzar, whether you have Herod, this is just off the top of my head. Whether you have Felix, Agrippa, people that Paul stood for. Whether you have Caesar who lopped off Paul's head. You have Pilate who crucified um, Christ. You have governing authority. And governing authority we respect, we're thankful for. It curbs Um, sin because people don't want to be caught. They don't want to be jailed and they don't want to be killed. They don't want to be fined. And that is what God establishes worldwide with pagan government, pagan government. Now, do you have Christians who are in office? Yes. We praise the Lord for that. We pray for that. There's great warriors of the faith who have been able to be the great testimony for God, like Daniels in um, corrupt Babylonian society who stand for truth. And that's beautiful, and we respect that, and we're thankful for that. Thinking off the top of my head, William Wilberforce, who snuffed out uh, slavery in England, and, and he was part of the parliament, and is this Christian godly man. I mean, you, we need people in these positions of authority 1 Timothy 2 says we're supposed to pray for kings, pray for those who are over us, godly and ungodly. We pray for our governing authorities. We should regularly pray for all areas of government. Why? So that God will give us a peaceful life. Not peaceful to be protected from the mission, but so we can perform the mission of the gospel. It's, it's freedom right now that I'm, we're live streaming, that I'm preaching the gospel, that we have a Christian school that's open. These are glorious freedoms that we pray for. But at the same time, be not deceived. The government um, will, is predicted to do what it did here to the apostles, to the early church. It will do it again. It's done it throughout the ages to the church worldwide, and it will bring it home even to our homeland soil. The governing authorities will do these things. This is predicted um, to be dragged before governors and kings. Why? Why is this happening? Just to demonize the government? Is that what I'm doing? No. When this happens, this is where we will have our finest hour as a church. Why? 
Because the most pure witness is the witness where you preach Christ and you're stripped of everything. It's one thing to witness, you know, in these clubs or these opportunities or, you know, vacation missions trips and things like that where you go and preach the gospel. And and I'm not against those things. I'm against having um, fun in um, being a Christian and enjoying life and freedom. But when you lose everything or you're under the threat of losing something, that's when your witness is most pure. That's when it's most believable because you're you're at risk of losing something and you've you're proving that you've gained everything there is no trade-off because you have christ you have christ i remember talking to a family member one time as a little kid and asking uh this gentleman would he be willing to witness for christ even if it meant they were going to kill his wife and this gentleman said to me well what i would do is i would just fake it I would just sort of put it over here for a while and say, I'm not a believer in Christ. Make sure my wife was safe. And then I would reestablish that I'm a believer in Christ. And I thought, as a little kid, I'm like, no, that doesn't compute. That doesn't work. That's not what it is. That's denying the grace of the gospel. You say, how am I going to do it? How am I going to stand up for Christ? God will give you the grace, just like the parents who are raising a handicapped child, the parents who are who've who've lost a child or or you've lost a loved one. How? What is the answer? What is always the answer? It was grace. You say, I never could do that. Well, you could if God gave you the grace to do it. Talked to a missionary who was from Burma and uh, he had this it, this python or anaconda or whatever come up into his hut thing and he you know he was just telling me and my boys this it was an awesome missionary story moment and we're in a little minivan he said yeah the snake was bigger than the minivan it came up and he said he reached over and grabbed a bat and just hit the head and it went down you know and how do you go back to sleep after that right i mean the thing's like and um he just he started to preach to all of us in the car grace it's grace i had grace that i didn't understand i would have until i was in the moment And you have the grace of the gospel. That's how you get through. We do it because it's for Christ's sake. It it extends his witness. It extends his ministry. It's bearing witness to the Gentiles, both to condemn unbelieving Gentiles and to win believing Gentiles, new believers, because the stakes are high. It's a private witness. It's a public witness for Christ. Um, Acts 17, 6, the apostles, what was their reputation when they stood for Christ? They were, watch this, turning the world upside down. That's an amazing statement to think about. As we appeal, as we are appealing for acquittal, as we're going through the system of being prosecuted and going to jail and going to higher levels of of, um, exposure in the court system, even maybe to the Supreme Court, we're broadening and expanding the witness for Christ. He's real, he's true, and we're willing to go all the way and to not ever deny the faith. We would never deny the faith. That's the whole point. The issue that, it, and we, this is by way of review, that Jesus is solving here, building into verses 19 and 20, is to be someone who goes the distance who will not deny the faith. You say, you know, my greatest fear is public speaking. My greatest fear is failing. My greatest fear is losing this. My greatest fear is losing that. Well, the issue beneath the issue beneath the issue is not quitting, not giving up. Because if you come under duress and you say, okay, I'm not a real Christian. I know you're about to kill me or my, I'm, I'm not real. If you do that, you're failing. And the whole point is Jesus will give you the grace not to fail. That's what he is proving out in verse 19. How does he say that? 
He says, when they deliver you over, verse 19, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious. Don't worry. Why? How you're to speak or what you're to say or what for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's like you're on autopilot. It's amazing. Now, I know it's a decision in that moment to stand for Christ. It's a decision to hold the line. It's a decision to keep counseling something that's making people feel very, very awkward. It's a decision to go for it, but God will give you the words. He'll just give you the words. It's amazing. And he gave the apostles the words. You can read of these um, occasions through the book of Acts where Paul's before Agrippa. Or Jesus is before Pilate. I mean, the words are coming. And they're words that are, that are through the personality of the person being persecuted. It's through that personality. It's within real situations, real circumstances. But these are actual words that are given to them in that moment. Not like, you know, someone's in a trance, like under a demonic, you know, spell or, or something like that. It's not like that at all. It's just like how the apostles were under the inspiration of uh, writing scripture. You have the writers of the New Testament and God was using their circumstances and they were writing real people in real situations through their personality and through their giftedness to give us our Bibles. In the same way, these apostles were speaking truth as God was giving them the words to say. And, And they were relating what they were going through to the gospel story. It's all within the gospel context. I know you're worried about this, but let me bring it back to the fact that you're saved by grace alone in Christ alone. You need to be saved from your sin. I know this is a political issue to you. I know you're mad at me right now because I've preached something that's messing up your your idols racket where you're losing money right now in the system. You can read all about this in Acts. They would always get in trouble, you know, for certain things. I know you're mad because I'm 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 promoting Christ and in the synagogues and the Sanhedrin's threatened right now religiously and you want to put me in jail for that. But really, all of this is about the fact that you need Jesus and you need to be saved. That's just like the conversion therapy thing. I know you're mad that we're upsetting you about something politically or we're stirring the pot, but we really just want your soul to be saved. And so I have to preach the gospel. That's why I'm preaching the gospel. That's why I'm giving you the truth for your heart, for your soul's sake, for the truth. We don't want to choke on it. We want to endure. Look at verse 20. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit Of your Father, the Holy Spirit, speaking through you. It's amazing. We don't want to go AWOL, absent without leave, choking on the mission for self-protection. We don't want to be ignoble. We don't want to deny the faith. We don't want physical harm to come to us. We don't want physical harm to come to our family. Yet, we will stand for truth. Because the Holy Spirit will give us the truth in the moment. That's why we need to read our Bibles. This is not a call to be a lazy Bible student. We need to be Bible students. Not just reading our Bibles. This is an R.C. Sprolism, and I think I gave it weeks ago. Not just reading our Bibles. We need to be studying our Bibles. Studying to show ourselves approved. Workmen of God who need not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That's how it comes back to you. It's how I preach. I don't just read the notes. It's in there. Why? Because it has to be. I, I'm, I study the Bible. I have to do it. And I put myself in situations where I have to do it. I'm not a natural reader. I'm not a natural Bible student person. I'm a person who needs to be under duress and in a panic with a deadline. And that pushes me to do the work. Put yourself in those arenas to study the truth so the Spirit can give you what you need in the times of crisis, of life, 
That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. You say government um, is not going to do that. Well, let me just, I, I, I was led again to a biography that I'm opening up again. I, I went 30 pages in and put it on the shelf for like years. And it was given to me by a family member. And, you know, now I've brought it back out. And I, I just, books come to you a lot of times by promptings and you get inspired to read it. And I talked to someone, a pastor in Fredericksburg, who picked that book up off the shelf. And it's, it's the biography of Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma and brought the gospel, brought the Bible, brought translation. He came under... Um, persecution because Burma was being colonized by, um, by Great Britain. And so he was in prison for the gospel in that way. But um, earlier, and, and so I pulled the biography off and started reading it again. And it's talking about his dad. So Adoniram Judson is a PK, he's a pastor's kid. His dad was in 1776 trying to get into a church. He had, he had, Checked out several churches in the area, 1776 in our country. Things are interesting during that time. King George oppression, the Declaration of Independence. We're going to be a country um, moment is happening. And this is all in Boston where the dad, who's this medium-sized built guy, who's just a preacher, who's reformed in his theology, is checking out churches and they're checking him out. And so he goes to churches and and none of them are going to give him a 100% vote because he's a Calvinist. He's preaching Reformed theology. He's getting in the weeds, you know, of the Bible, and they don't like it. These Unitarian churches that are more social club oriented and ecumenical, and let's all just be friends and get together. I mean, things were really bad in 1776 with our country and religion. I just want to kind of point that out. Then you have other churches that are there that are congregational churches where everybody gets a democratic vote, and it's just how we're all safe in here together. And, you know, we know the Puritan gave a high view of God message and a low view of man and the authority of scripture message, but we're really looking for something called life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not trying to be a bad American. I love joy. I love life. I love happiness. I love freedom. But I love the gospel mission and ministry um, as a far greater mission than my own personal happiness. Um, people coming to Christ The mission is looking not just to now, it's looking to the future where there's a great dividing line in heaven one day where people are actually sent to a literal hell if they won't repent against a God who is holy, high, and wrathful against that. And we have the message that solves life, not just for how to get through a stressful um, season where you're trying to pay bills. That's not my level here of mission. That's not the cost of discipleship. This is go and die for Christ. Go in the field for Christ. And so Adoniram Judson, I'm going to read the, you know, the, the, his, his story as junior in, in this um, home, this pastor's home. He, I think that his dad ultimately got voted in to a church. And then he'll ultimately make a break and go to Burma by ship and give the gospel there. I'm going to read that. Hopefully it will help me understand things as clearly as possible. But this is the call for... Life and the call for mission and ministry. What's the hardest form of persecution for us? The hardest form is not religious. The hardest form of persecution is not governmental. The hardest form of persecution will always be in the family. It's always the family. It's always where father turns on son or son turns on father. It's always where children are um, 
at angst with their mother. It's where the gospel is not a comfortable conversation in the home. You say, well, how could that even happen? Well, it does happen. The gospel is very personal. It's very real. And we want to be gracious to family members, but persecution in the home is the most egregious and difficult version of standing for the faith because your own flesh is turning on you. They're treating you as if you are dead to them. There's violence. There's vitriol. These are biblical nightmares that are being um, foreseen by Christ that are going to take place. Brother delivering brother over to death. Father, verse 21, his own child. Children rising against parents to have them put to death. Being hated by all. You say, how can this happen? Well, when the Trojan horse of conversion therapy comes into the conversation and then accusations are made um, within your own family for why you're preaching against homosexuality or you're preaching against someone who's transitioning or you have a problem with this or that, things will get heated up very, very quickly, especially if someone has to go to jail for it. So you're going to preach that and send my parent to jail? I hate you. I mean, that kind of stuff is going to crank up. This is what is being predicted. And this is what we have to stand for and endure through. Um, One of the pre-sermon, I preached my sermon to some men on Fridays. And one of the guys said, you know, it does get this bad. Remember what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And at Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot is trying to be righteous and he's being um, counseled by angels, the angels became so attractive to the crowds and they wanted them for homosexual purposes that Lot was even being tempted in his own heart to offer his daughters out the door to save the angels. That's how confusing things get and how radical things get when perversion is the uh, craving of the heart. where People are doing violence within the family, wickedness. I would just invite you to turn over in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is just the description of how bad it's going to be in the end. 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you look at verse 8, speaking of the law, how it exposes sin. This is part of the gospel. It's the standard that holds the mirror up to people's hearts. Paul said to Timothy, now we know that the law is good If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who, here it is, strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, think of the trafficking that goes on, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. There's so much fighter language in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, the, the, the call of discipleship is to be an athlete, to be a farmer, to be a soldier. Those are hardworking jobs to keep going, to not quit, The whole point is to not quit when it gets this bad. And you probably have suffered at levels 
in your own jobs. Maybe you feel like your job is threatened, your employment is threatened, or at least any sort of upgrade in your career is being threatened within government, with strictures and and things. Perhaps you felt awkward within people choosing one church over another based on the message that's being preached or not preached in a particular place. And then in your homes with awkwardness and family conversations and things, all of these things are percolating. All of these things are just beneath the surface, but Christ is calling it out now as the caution for the apostles to say, get after it, get in the mission, be fearless and be brave with the message. We need to be willing to call things out, call people to truth, even if things get a post-apocalyptic looking in modern day, Jesus is sugarcoating nothing. Everything boils down to one thing, though. It's perseverance. Look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures. Endurance is hupomone, the one who bears up under, doesn't run away from the fight, but goes through the fight. Not around the storm, through the storm. You're bearing up under the weight of the trial. The one who endures the end will be saved. What does that mean? In Revelation, the overcomer is the true Christian. The one who doesn't quit is the true Christian. The one who does not deny Christ, even at risk of death, is the true Christian. It's fruit that puts on display the true faith that's in the heart. Faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is is not by works. It's by grace. It's a gift. But true salvation will produce a heart that keeps beating even when the fight is on. A, a, A persevering runner that vindicates that he's a real marathoner because he finishes a marathon. Someone says, you know, I, I run marathons, nine miles of them. You know, I mean, that's not a marathoner. A marathoner is someone who goes the full marathon all the way to the end. That's a Christian. A Christian is one who is a runner who runs the race to get the prize all the way to glory. It's not earning your faith. It's proving your faith. It's the opposite of enduring is quitting. That's the antonym for endurance is quitting or denying the faith. Peter had three denials. He was sifted by, by, like wheat by Satan. But that, those denials meant he wasn't perfect. But then he, he was a believer. He, he was a believer when he was denying. But the good news of the gospel is we see the whole story of Peter. He denied. He, had a, he, he stumbled. He fell. He denied. The apostles scattered. Remember that? I mean, people ran. David, earlier on, sinned egregiously, was horrible, unrepentant for a year before he repented. Job, roller coaster ride, you know, throughout 42 chapters. At the end, he's affirmed in his unbreakable faith. We're not called to live perfectly. I mean, we are called to be holy. But the expectation is God is making us holy. We are not solely responsible for our holiness. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whom he foreknew, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Um, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's a team effort. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're called to be holy. He's going to make us holy, but we're going to bump along through this. The standard is high. And it's a commission, and it is a caution, and it is a calling to embrace the cost of discipleship. 
We're going to be looking next week at um, the comfort to the 12. It's the calling of the 12, the commissioning of the 12, the caution of the 12, and then the comfort of the 12. And that begins in verse 24 or 23. And I just want to begin to read and dip my toe into the pool and then we'll come to an abrupt close. But look at verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? You know what the point? I'll give away the thunder and lightning of next week. The point of comfort in a mission this hard is simply this. You get to be like Jesus. You get to be like Jesus. Many of you know uh, Bob Arnold. I don't think he would mind me sharing this. Part of Grace Christian School, former part of our church. And um, the Arnolds, he's, he's a stitch to listen to. Um, he's ophthalmologist, um, optometrist, um, something um, brilliant. But he, uh, I remember sitting there with my daughter who was being told she's going to have to wear glasses. And he wears glasses. And um, she said, oh, she was young. I have to wear glasses? He said, no, no, you get to wear glasses. You get to wear glasses. That's what this is. As Christians, we get to do this mission because it is enough. Jesus is enough. We get to be called Lord of the Flies, Beelzebul. We get to be, we get to be persecuted. Why? Because it's all real. Remember the apostles in the book of Acts, they went home rejoicing because they, they were counted worthy to be beaten and to suffer for Christ's sake. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Hebrews chapter 11. We get to be that. 